0: Fit Toys.
1: Welcome to episode 598 with my guest uh, my buddy Dr. Edward Sharrock. I am Paul Gilmartin. This is the Mental Illness Happy Hour, a place for honesty about all the bullshit rattling around in our skulls. From medically diagnosed conditions, past traumas and sexual dysfunction to everyday compulsive negative thinking and uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I am not a therapist. Uh, You know, I love to share stuff that uh, I talk about in my support groups and therapy. And uh, in one of my support groups, uh, we were reading some literature, and one of the things that it said is it doesn't matter whether you're meditating for one minute or 20 minutes. The important thing is that you just attempt meditation. And it was so good to be reminded of that because you know how how much we judge ourselves. I think there are few things I judge myself as harshly on as the quality of my meditation. I, for some reason, I have this belief that I'm supposed to be totally focused on my mantra and not forget it. And a lot of times, it's meditation for me is just 20 minutes of worrying with my eyes closed. And, uh, one of the positives, even if it, it's a quote-unquote bad meditation session, is it introduces us to what it is that we're obsessing about. So then we can decide, eh, do, you know, do, do I want to do something about this? Do I need to let it go? Do I do I need to take some kind of action? Um, but, you know, it's it's just a reminder, again, that it's about the seeking, you know, because to seek... I think we have to at least partially let go of control and kind of dance with the universe that I'd like that on my tombstone he didn't always succeed but he tried is that a little is that a little too low self-esteem <laughs> actually I've, I've, there will be no headstone I'm gonna I'm gonna get cremated and not only am I gonna get cremated I'm gonna have him <laughs> turn it on extra hot I want it crispy uh, I've been isolating a lot, and I don't know about you guys, but it is hard sometimes to take your isolation to the next level. So I brought on an isolation engineer, and because uh, I was just I was losing my game, I was experiencing the sun, and this guy helped me go full vampire. We th- we thickened the curtains. I'm going groceries delivery only because this guy, he said the key to true isolating is having a safe and consistent space to accurately picture the world ending. And he was so, so right. See, human contact confuses you with glimmers of hope. The key is always having your voicemail box full. It's plausible deniability. He knew something was off when he went through my clothes and he saw a consistent waist size. He, he actually yelled at me. So we created a vision board and it's a, it's a size 72 belt, which doubles as a noose. Was that too dark? But I'm optimistic that by, by Christmas, I'll have lost any sense of my worth as a person. A shoot for the stars. That's what you got to do. Let's do some surveys. This is from the Voice in Your Head survey filled out by a woman who calls herself Buffalo Empress and uh, some of the things you tell yourself about yourself that I'm a useless piece of shit that isn't as smart as my grades tell me I am. Oh my God, the brilliance of the mean voice in the head (laughs) can tell you the scientific data of your grades is wrong. Is there nothing it can't denigrate? That is a great one. Thank you for sharing that. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself bad dancer. And uh, she says, I was debating on the specific question I wanted to ask. Um, How do you manage a relationship or friendship with someone who is still in active addiction? And when do you feel like your support is just enabling? That, those are great questions. Uh, and she writes, a little background on my, uh, my part. I'm 32, but when I was 20, I was in a pretty toxic relationship with a 23-year-old guy. When our relationship was still new, he injured his back on a construction job and was prescribed painkillers. And you can imagine how it spiraled from there. As far as I know, he's been homeless for the last six years. Last time I saw him was four years ago, and he stayed at my house for three days. I'd thought he had died on the streets in the meantime." However, a few months ago he contacted me and just this past week I was able to see him again in person. I had so many questions and I wanted to catch up with him. He roped me into dropping him off in a parking lot to pick up drugs and then I allowed him to do those drugs at my house. I feel like an enabler for allowing those things to happen, but I'm also trying not to be judgmental over someone who is struggling. And I think that that a, a, a really important thing to to understand when we have somebody in our life who is in active addiction is how do i how do i explain this um we don't we can detach from somebody without judging them i don't know if that makes sense we can love them from a from a distance And that's a really, really important tool if you are codependent or enmeshed or have have some, you know, untreated addicts and alcoholics can be so manipulative and It's really easy to get sucked back into it, especially if the things they're telling us we want to be true. And I think a really important thing is look at the facts on the ground when you're dealing with someone who is in active addiction. If they tell you, you know, oh, uh, you know, I couldn't come over for this reason. I canceled our thing. And, you know, I did it four four times in a row. And each time they have an excuse why, you know, they failed to show up or they didn't have rent money or whatever, look at the facts on the ground that four times in a row they didn't keep their word rather than listening to their promises to to change. Um, she writes, so I'm not sure how to carry on this weird friendship. How do I help someone in active addiction without feeling like I'm being taken advantage of? Am I enabling him? My therapist reminded me that I cannot control what people do, but I'm not sure what steps to take from here. Any advice is more than welcome. I think the first question is, what do you want out of this relationship? Um, Do you want to be friends with this person while they're in active addiction? Because yeah, you're probably going to wind up enabling them. Uh, Active addicts uh, wind up using almost anybody uh, that's that's around them for money or drugs or a place to stay. Um, so I, th- I think that's the first question you need to ask yourself. And when you get the answer to that, then you can decide what's the best way to proceed. But uh, I would imagine if you're looking at this from a healthy perspective, is you want the best for your friend and you also want to not be drained personally and be lied to, in which case, I would tell that person, I love you, but I can't be around you when you're using. If you need help getting sober, I'll help find meetings or, you know, uh, a rehab, Uh, but in the meantime, I, I, I can't be around you, but I love you. So, I hope that helps. This is uh, also from the Ask Paul Anything survey filled out by a woman who calls herself feeling bad even filling this out. And she asked, do you ever come away from an interview feeling like, meh, or frustrated by the guest's lack of self-knowledge? Yeah, I have. I have. And there have been some episodes uh, that I haven't aired because I felt like there just wasn't, it just didn't click. And um, it's... People can have really interesting stories, but I think when you're putting them on a podcast, you are you owe it to the listeners to offer them a, a, an experience that is at least mildly compelling. And some people lack the ability to articulate what otherwise might be a very interesting story, um, or they're kind of stuck in anger and, and denial, which to me doesn't make for a great a great podcast. I interviewed a guy uh, a couple of years ago who was a punk rock pioneer, and I was excited to to air this episode. And all, and this guy had written a book about uh, you know, like being Zen. And this guy's interview was sixty minutes of him bragging about punching people. <laughs> and I kept trying, you know, different avenues to find something that wasn't about you know his physical bravado and it just we just couldn't we just couldn't get it and so i i haven't aired that one but you know what maybe i should because it's it's kind of an unintentionally interesting episode i don't know maybe i'll post it for the patreon uh people and get their thoughts on it now, a word from our sponsor, BetterHelp. Uh, we have talked about burnout. That's the the theme of uh, BetterHelp this month. And it's, it's something that I have struggled with because I could be really out of touch with what I'm experiencing. You know, those of us that have mean voices in our brain, when we're tired, it tells us, well, you're just lazy. You know, when we're... At our wit's end, with the friendship with somebody, it tells us, well, you're just a bad friend because you don't want to hang out with them tonight. But recognizing when you're burned out is a really, really important tool in maintaining uh, a healthy brain and, and healthy emotions and... I can speak from experience that the therapy sessions I have with my therapist at BetterHelp help me identify when I'm getting burned out and tools to to reach for to help me deal with it. BetterHelp is online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat-only therapy sessions, so you don't have to see anyone on camera if you don't want to. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can be matched with a therapist in under 48 hours. And you guys, the listeners, get 10% off your first month at BetterHelp.com mental. That's BetterHelp.com mental. And make sure you include the slash mental so that they uh, know you came from the podcast. And then finally, this is an awfulsome moment filled out by a guy who calls himself that goat guy. And he writes, For days I'd been stuck in this loop of wanting to kill myself with all the details of how, where, and what to do with my place of residence and my belongings, etc. As I was mulling it all over for the hundredth time, a lady approached me. Why are you still wearing that mask? To which I heard myself answer, Because I don't want to die. Your fear of death is your love of life in reverse. I'm a kinky person. I didn't want to be. I'm shy, A sexual being. Deeply shite. You are. I want to live. Fucking <laughs> depressed. But how? I
0: can't do this anymore. I will be uncomfortable, so you will be comfortable. Is
1: life just a series of perpetual losses? You're not depressed. We're black. There is no real chance for intimacy. We don't do that. Without And when you find them, it's a great feeling. (laughs) And I'm suddenly feeling horrible about making that joke. But that's how far I will go to get a laugh because I am empty inside. Ah, you're in the right place. I'm here with my buddy, Edward Chirac. And uh, he is a licensed psychologist. Uh, I know him from uh, from my support groups. And uh, we we've been talking about you coming on the show since mm-hmm. you uh, got licensed as a therapist and we were kind of going back and forth on well there's a lot of things that we could talk about and the two things that we decided that we're going to talk about one because um, it's so common and I realize that we don't really talk about it mm-hmm. on the podcast is being a rescuer yeah, and, uh, and the other thing I wanted to talk about is what you wrote your dissertation about sure. which is about relapse yeah. um, so first let's talk about Somebody who is an emotional rescuer, both yeah. uh, platonically and, and romantically. What are what are kind of some of the signs? Um, and if you're comfortable sharing any of your story sure. about, yeah, playing that role. Sure. I mean,
0: it wouldn't it? Might not be a surprise that therapists might have a little bit of rescuer <laughs> in them, right? And maybe that's how we found our way to the field, right? <laughs> Uh And um, my hope is, you know, is that other mental health professionals kind of work on that um, just so that they can avoid any countertransference issues that might kind of cloud their judgment. But that being said, you know, it's a process. Uh, yeah, I mean, in terms of emotional rescuing, I, I think we're, we're kind of talking about enabling to some extent, right? And we're talking about Uh, coming in and sort of saving someone Mm. and um, being their person and that in some ways can be crazy making right and in other ways because you're like why can't they I just you know but you you, why can't they drink in moderation (laughs) why can't they drink or why can't they you know I'm putting in so much effort you know into this and and how come they're not but if I don't who will right? right um and, and the the answer is uh, anyone else they find, right? Right.
1: They, maybe them eventually. Maybe, yeah,
0: maybe them eventually, right? Uh, and maybe not. You know, sometimes with the cluster bees that are really pervasive and not treated, right, they can... Keep moving
1: along and keep moving along. And when I you think, say cluster Bs, you mean the uh, you know comorbidity. Uh, yeah, so, thing.
0: well, people who tend to have like um, you know like personality disorders that are kind of on the like the borderline, you know, narcissistic, histrionic, kind of sociopathic, um, kind of or I guess antisocial. But um, on those kind of areas, right? Because um, <clears throat> they're looking for someone else to kind of save or you know to show them. That kind of stuff at times, um, that kind of connection, right? And um, who's looking for oh, the, for the them. cluster B person, the person being rescued, right? right. Uh, there's a payoff for them as well, I think. And um, once you withdraw that, um, <clears throat> they may go and find someone else, mm-hmm. right? Um, if when you're able to set the boundary, and if that person's not in a place where they can respect that boundary, uh, it does create some emotional distance, right? And it might even require a termination temporarily or long-term of a specific relationship. Um, And if that person isn't doing anything to change, they're going to seek out another person to fill that need. They're reciprocal, right? So it sounds like, oh, emotional rescuing, right? The person who's rescuing is doing all the work. But there's a payoff for both people, right and I think
1: what are the payoffs for both people yeah
0: well you know for the person who's being rescued obviously there's that part of it Mm -hmm. you know they get that um,
1: getting bailed uh, out of jail getting bailed
0: out just um being taken care of um it's
1: okay you don't have to go look for a job I know you're depressed but you don't want to take (laughs) meds and you don't want to go to therapy sure
0: or even like like soothe me right soothe me and uh be my person listen to me like hear me out right um I'm going to create all this wreckage, but instead of working on the issues that may be causing that wreckage, I'm just going to come vent to you and take up all your time. Right. And you're going to want to make me feel safe and comforted. In, because in then
1: you're a good person. <laughs> then you're a good person.
0: Yeah, there's that. Yeah, for sure. I mean, I think that I'll say in my own personal experiences, in some ways, I would say this more so in intimate relationships, so then I could feel like the good guy. Mm. Right, I could feel like the good guy, and then I wanted, and then um, you know I'm, I'm feeling like, oh, at least I have that to offer, right?
1: and it's a powerful feeling when you feel that you have affected change, usually only temporarily, in somebody's life. It's yeah. it, it can be a real high, and I, I think especially for kids who are parentified, you know, that's kind of. Uh, it's kind of a big head trip for a kid, even though it fucks him up, feeling like, you know, my parent trust me enough to talk about how much they hate their marriage. Mm-hmm. I must be really smart.
0: Right. Yeah. yeah. Um, I, I, yeah I think parent- parentification is a challenge. It's challenging. It's hard. Uh, you know, the child really won't have the capacity to understand that, um, oh, I'm not supposed to be doing this. Right, because it's not, I, I don't think a kid says, I'm going to be the savior for my parents, right? It's really a survival kind of thing. It's, um, hey, if I show up for my parents, then they can show up for me too. You know, I did notice, I think, you know, we're talking about personal stuff. I love my parents and they're amazing people. Um, I actually wouldn't be sober if it wasn't for them um, and the amount of love and support they offered. Um, I will also say that I think in their own growth and development, uh, you know, one of the things I noticed as a kid uh, was that my parents would be arguing about completely different things, right? And At the same attention. time. Yeah. They'd be like one person would be on one point about something, you know, and this is like obviously, you know, they 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 were the points and the issue was in some ways um, congruent, right? It had to. They were on like in the same arena, I guess you could say, but the things they were actually arguing about, um, maybe they just maybe if I'm reflecting, maybe it's they weren't actually listening to each other and they both had what was important to them that they were hyper focused on. I'd be like you guys aren't even talking about the same thing. Right. And then I kind of felt like, oh, maybe if I talked to this person and I talked to that person, I could massage a little bit of stuff. I don't think I was very effective at it, but. Um, I think that's kind of where I maybe noticed I was starting out with that. And at Um, least
1: you don't feel helpless.
0: At least you don't feel helpless. And you, uh, you know, it's, hey, like, let me take the focus off of you guys arguing and bring it back to me in some way. Mm -hmm. Right. So there's that payoff. And um, I think that's, uh, you know, that can show up later on in life, I guess, with. The intimate relationships. But, you know, we're talking about that. And uh, we, I said, oh, we're the good guy. We're, we're you know, helpful are, are we. And then I think also if I'm really busy rescuing someone else, I'm not looking at my own shit. Right. Right. Which, not,
1: which I think. Yeah is probably the subconscious point of it right. d- d- yeah. the survival mechanism to not think Absolutely. about our pain is I'm gonna worry about your drinking right. or you not getting a job right. or you yeah. know instead of oh I didn't get to do
0: that thing because I was so busy rescuing you right um, maybe acknowledging how much that's actually sucked and like what your part of it was to not go after that thing you wanted it's really easy to then blame someone else but then hey I'm rescuing them. I also think that in some ways, um, I don't know, it's almost like, hey, I'm going to take this broken bird and make it mine, right? And um, is that kind of picking off a weak one, maybe? Somebody that's
1: maybe not going to leave?
0: Maybe not going to leave. Maybe someone that um, is, uh, I don't know, like if someone is seeking someone else and desperate for that rescuing, right, then you know, in essence, you get to be the good guy, right? But then you're also, I don't know. It's almost like it's uh, instead of finding someone who is at your level, possibly. And by the way, when I say your level, I mean, it's more at, you know, at the potential of what you have when you work on these issues. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's almost kind of like, I don't want to say predatory, right? I don't i don't think it's that necessarily. Um, but it's like, hey, like you're... In the same way that maybe someone who's, like, really um, on that narcissistic spectrum of that cluster B kind of stuff is looking for someone that they can get a lot of those, that emotional rescuing and then kind of um, allow them to engage in just behaviors that we really wouldn't tolerate most people Mm -hmm. to engage in, Um, as the rescuer, you're kind of like... swooping in and like you're you know, there's there's a fast track to that in a sense. Right. You find a, your way in yeah. this here versus like, hey, I'm I'm a person who's just I'm whole and good as I am, mm-hmm. right? You're like, oh, you have a need, so you'll be more vulnerable to taking me in as
1: well. Right. You and, know and, and there's something intoxicating about a wound to the to the rescuer that is I don't know, familiar.
0: Yeah.
1: It you can you can kind of there isn't an unknown you know going into a relationship with a healthy person um, who doesn't text you five hundred times you know who isn't enmeshed who isn't trauma bonding there's a lot of unknowns in the beginning in the beginning of that relationship and for somebody who is a love avoidant or a love addict to sit through that unknown is either boring or terrifying, I think. Or both. Yeah.
0: Right? I, uh, you know, so after I kind of started noticing this pattern of mine and, you know, I was was kind of in the the middle of grad school while that was happening. And, um, you know, I, I started doing some more of my own therapeutic work, which I obviously it's always recommended for therapists to kind of be seeing someone just even as a, an objective kind of view not as a supervisor but once you get licensed you kind of lose that supervision to mm-hmm. some extent and you're sort of working more in isolation so it's just good to have someone so you're not going rogue um as i did my work and everything one of the things i did was i wrote down a list of ideals right and i wrote like so many ideals it was like it was nuts and I, I eventually met my wife and when and she kind of check marked I'm going to say like 98 percent of the boxes. There were like one or two things that really actually didn't matter to me that much but mm-hmm. I was like oh that would be cool if there was that extra rainbow sprinkle on there who knows you know but um, dating her I was like wow well, so you've worked through your stuff um, what do I do here? <laughs>
1: like <laughs> how, you, you were asking her
0: I didn't, for, have, to, for I didn't have to fix her. No, I mean, it just to myself, I'm like, I didn't have to fix her, right? So, oh, what do you do? What, so, what here. do I do here? Yeah. Like, yes. what am I, like, what is, how am I going to find worthiness in this relationship, right? And if if I'm not having to fix her, right? we can just be together. And then it was really rewarding because we could actually just go do fun stuff and actually develop real intimacy, right? And like real connection. And that was really cool. And uh, and so, yeah, we, you know, now we're married and we have a beautiful child and it's, uh, it's going pretty swell. Um, I'm not sure where I was going with that point, but I think I just wanted to say that I was like kind of referencing her and kind of the pattern of how that changed. Um, Yeah. I would encourage anybody who seems to be in a pattern of rescuing to just not date or kind of you know, spend time maybe away from those parents that you feel like you're rescuing or friends or colleagues even sometimes. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, it's kind of hard to not be around your colleagues, I guess, but you know, take some time for yourself, right. And just see what comes up, right. See what that itch is. And, um, you know, uh, just allow yourself to drop into some feelings that you may have been ignoring for a long, long time. You know, um, if you're a person Who like me bounced from one thing to the next? Maybe there's something we're not wanting to look at, you know. And I think uh, that can be such a powerful experience to just give yourself that space and and rescuing self
1: for a while. And and look at the the lengths of relationships. You know, if you've never been in a relationship that lasted longer than three or six months, it might be something to look at. For
0: sure. I, I think I was one of those people where the relationship ended a month and a half in and I kept going for another year or two <laughs> just to see what I could salvage, you know? Um, and in some ways that's familiar, right? It's a lot easier to for something to break down and build it back up, break down and build it back up, break down and build it back up, as opposed to just building, 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 building. You know, it can take a lot of, just a lot of energy. And I think when we're living in the anxiety of that, that becomes normal to us. You know, and um, once we take ourselves out of that anxiety, then we start noticing when we get pulled back into it and you're like, oh, man, I'm having a an autonomic response to this right now. I'm, I'm feeling like my heart race. I'm feeling my mind, my thoughts go in in a direction they haven't gone in a while. And I just actually don't like this feeling like this is not what I was
1: enjoying a little bit ago. So, I would imagine another common thing that people feel too once they get into a committed relationship um would be a feeling of um dread and exhaustion uh oh. even though there's there's nothing in particular um well may, let me just speak about myself yeah. uh it when when I feel seen and i'm committed there are times when i feel um, trapped by the responsibility that somebody somebody's happiness depends on me mm-hmm. even though it doesn't yeah. even I, though i intellectually know i'm so used to being wired to be the guy to, to put the smile on people's faces yeah. that it's hard for me to conceive of not being something that improves somebody's mood. Uh,
0: then, yeah, um, I I can totally relate to that and um I also it's like why not? You know, why not be some like someone's person, right? But then and why not have that be reciprocal, you know? Um, I mean, we're hardwired to do that, right? There's uh, this really awesome study that I will reference a lot in the work I do to kind of normalize being a helper or being an enabler in a way, um, in the sense that, so you take two groups of people, you give one group $5 to spend on other people, and you give the other group $20 to spend on themselves. And then as they're walking out of the experiment, you know, you the hypothetical spending or actual spending... Uh, they ask you how, how, like, where you would rate your happiness, right? And the group that tends to be the happiest um, is the one that spent less money, but on someone else, mm-hmm. right? So, as social beings, as humans, I think if we were all just about self all the time, we would not be able to build community, and we probably right. wouldn't be able to survive, you know. Um, so, we've just been bred to actually get a little hit when we help someone out and be there for them. The issue is sort of when that, you're the one that's giving, right?
1: It's not reciprocal. It's
0: not reciprocal.
1: I just realized that the microphones, I bought new microphones, (laughs) and I just realized that they had been pointing the wrong way. So the reason that the sound is a little bit better right now is because of that. And that's why the last couple of episodes, uh, you heard too much ambient noise and and them. Uh, Yeah, Maybe, Paul, you test your microphones before you use them. Anyway, <laughs> let's let's talk about, um, unless there's more stuff on rescuing that you wanted to talk about. Well, well let me ask you this. What are some good books? Uh, the, oh. P.M. Melody, Facing Love Addiction. I think that's a good one. Codependence No More is a
0: really good one. Melody uh, ba- Beatty, Beatty? I believe that's the case. And also, oh, here's the other thing. Yeah, this was the other kind of, that was the other thought. So I uh, I read my wife and I started reading this book um, while she was pregnant called 80-80 Marriage, mm-hmm. right? And so um, it doesn't necessarily... I don't know. I just think it's kind of cool. It's like, hey, if you're a giver and you start spending time and with someone else who's... So if we move from being a rescuer to a helper slash giver kind of place, right? You're still um, sort of more giving and all that, you know, than maybe someone who's on the more selfish side but you're also not necessarily extending yourself to a place where you're going to end up in a train wreck. Um and so if both people are kind of going a little bit above you know what their comfort zone is you know in terms of giving, right? Um but not like in the swooping and taking care of, right? right? Then then it's all good, right? So, and what do I mean by that? Well, okay, having a newborn is really hard right uh you know as a as a person who kind of specializes in family therapy i was like oh i get attachment oh i get developmental psychology but like in the moment it's like real challenging because uh the books change every five years or so and your baby just might not fit that norm in some way or another and you have such conflicting i mean just look up sleep training it's it's all a mess um i got sick though i had a cold right and um uh my wife just let me sleep and took care of our baby, you know? And so, um, that was really cool that she like rose up for that, you know? And then there are times where what
1: did, and what did that feel like emotionally? It felt for good.
0: For it felt wonderful. And in some ways I felt guilt. I was like, oh, I should just put a mask on and just deal with it. You know, like she's got some can, can, can nine fives from work. Mm-hmm. She should be fine. My baby doesn't have to see my full face. Right. It's all in the eyes, right? And she can't even <laughs> see past, like, two feet anyway. So, you know, and I and I tried a little bit, and then it was like, she's like, you just need to, like, I'm, I'm just going to deal with
1: it. Like, we're going to do it together, right? And so. Um, and that feels so amazing. when yeah. Like, my girlfriend will do that for me, and I will forget that that was an option <sighs> right. to lean on somebody to let them carry the load. And she loves doing that. And yet there's something inside me that is so afraid to ask for help or to potentially be a burden.
0: Yeah. Oh, it's deep, huh? Yeah. It's deep. And then it's, but what's cool is I think once you get out of the pattern, you try new things, then you start noticing when that's coming up and you can challenge those, you know, schemas or beliefs and, and, uh, and, um, and if it's a person that actually can be caring and emotionally available you can share that stuff with them like hey i'm having these thoughts about you know I'm like i feel like i don't really deserve you to like helping me and all that and i know it's bullshit but my head does stuff sometimes right you know it's just the thing my brain does that's kind of how i kind of try to frame it and uh and that person will be like, yeah, wow, like, whoa, well, look, I'm really happy you're sharing that with me. And then not feel like they have to like be like, no, it's okay. You don't have to feel that way or anything. And then just kind of sit with you with that and that human experience. Because I think it's okay to be flawed, right? And it's okay to have your stuff. I think, um, uh, you know, this is not a clinical opinion, right? This is just like a, a person talking to another person, but maybe um, everyone has issues, and I think if you're aware of what your issues are, I think you're doing just fine. Uh, maybe crazy, right, is when you are not aware of what your issues are and you're kind of unleashing them upon your world, right? And I'm, for me, that's just a distinction. I think am I, am I being crazy or am I just like working through
1: issues right now, mm-hmm. you know? Um, so but- much of it is less about what the thought in your head is and more about what are you going to do? Right. With it. Sure. You're going to unleash it on somebody. You're going to open up diplomatically. You're going to bury it and let it drive the fucking bus for the next five years (laughs) and run everybody over.
0: Or for the extra two and a half years, that one and a half month relationship should have lasted. Right. Right. You know. But yeah, I mean, I think um, it's it's cool because it's uh, I I think for anyone who's like maybe considering that uh, they might have some emotional rescuing kind of issues going on. Yeah. Like try taking a break from other people for a brief period, you know, check out what maybe your payoffs are, you know what the fear is of not doing that. you know it can be really scary to say no sometimes, just like hey you know i can't I can't do that mm-hmm. uh you know in uh in you know one of our support groups it's you know there's the saying like don't never say no to a request from based on that group, right, and
1: for service you mean for service yeah right.
0: <laughs> and I had someone once um text me at like nine o'clock at night. And I, mind you, the way my life was at the time, I was, I was paying for grad school by being a personal trainer. So I had to be at work at five in the morning. Right. Um, and so this one guy messages me and he's like, Hey man, can you pick me up from Van Nuys airport at like ten thirty or 11 o'clock at night tonight? And then drive me to Burbank. And I was like, no, and I might have said yes before, because I was like, oh, who else is going to help him out, you know? Right. And I was like, you know, they can call a cab. Someone else. They can ask someone else who maybe actually lives in Burbank or maybe somewhere in the middle. Um, I don't have to be that person, right? Because if I do, I'm going to be wrecked the next day. I'm not going to get home until like, I don't know, like 12 o'clock or something like that. And then I'm going to be fried at work. And then I'm going to be fried at the next job as well was mm-hmm. like a substance use counselor. And probably not getting any schoolwork done. And so, but then feeling empowered to say no and like just try that like a new skill, like almost like a two like a toddler learns like no, you know, and just experiencing it, um, it's really powerful. And I think once you clear that space out, then I think those people you see those people right, like I actually, um, I had seen my wife before, and she had a friend who was a little bit more, um. You know needing more rescuing i would say right Mm -hmm. and uh just couldn't see my wife actually and then after doing my work i actually could see my wife and that other person i was like oh no 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 like that's like there's red flags there with that and so you know there's that i think in terms of i I will say in terms of therapy right um you know i don't i'm not gonna save anyone right as a Mm -hmm. therapist or as a psychologist um, I really love existential psychology because it's about the the power differential becomes more like equalized, but it also kind of takes some psychodynamic stuff, and it it also takes some ACT stuff. You know, what's ACT? Um, accept acceptance and commitment therapy. It's a yeah. kind of cognitive, but it looks at um, values and and. Um, So you can mix a little bit of both of that. And and the idea is sort of my job is to walk with the person I'm working with, not helping, but working with, I guess, um, and maybe helping them see how their behaviors or attitudes may not be aligned with what they're really wanting. Mm -hmm. Right. And so helping them kind of maybe small tweaks even. Right. Like just trying out different things. Or maybe acknowledging that, hey, this thing that I say is important because I'm supposed to say it's important, right? Maybe really isn't that important to them, right? And then having less anxiety because they're living a different life, right? So I, I think about it like this: the kind of therapy work I do is like working with and walking with that person and meeting them wherever they're at. You know, um, I used to think my job was to come in and like they need to go from being quote unquote, unhealthy or not functional to being healthy, functional. Right. And uh, I like if I'm just a good enough therapist, right, (laughs) you know, I'll I'll, I'll, I'll be. Yeah, right. I'll be able to save everyone, you know. Hmm. And then at some point, I think after doing a bunch of family therapy work, um, working as a family therapist, to clarify, uh, I realized that no matter how amazing of a family therapist i could possibly even imagine myself to be i'm not going to fix my parents right i'm not going to like save them from themselves and all i can do is just really love them as a son and uh show up for them when i'm able to you know Mm -hmm. um but definitely like i'm not going to change them and if they want some help you know like my dad recently started showing some memory stuff happening um and I had to be a little pushy with my mom about it, but, uh, I didn't just show up and take him over to the appointment. you know what I mean? Right. Or whatever, like kind of strong, or I just kind of sat with them and kind of just gently gave them reminders and, um, that all worked out, you know, but, um, so the point being is a mental health professional, like, right. It's like, Hey, like if you're feeling like if you don't treat this person, if, if I, as the therapist, am not treating this person, they're not going to make it. I might say that that person might need more help than you can offer, mm-hmm. right? And so, um, and then what wound or what kind of, what, what, what is that bringing up for you, right? Because like you said, right? Like you were talking about, you're in this healthy relationship. I'm in this healthy relationship, just even outside of therapy. Mm-hmm. And um, we still have those thoughts come up. Right. And if we're like so in the work, like we might get lost with that. So if anyone's a therapist listening to this and, and, you know, just to kind of keep that in mind and you might be like, of course, Edward, I went to grad school, too. And I you know I've been trained and it's it's all good. But, you know, remember, guys, like most of the ethics violations that we have to deal with typically end up when we start working in isolation and we're licensed to don't have as much oversight. So. Mm-hmm just it's good to check in with yourself maybe check in with some colleagues you know about that i feel like am i over you know we do that at my my job you know i'm lucky that i have three amazing therapists i work with um and a lot of other you know substance counselors and just other people but uh, in terms of the just therapy team right individual and family i've got like three really awesome people i work with and we'll walk over and say am i is it crazy for me to think that this might be okay or whatever, or what's going on with that? Or like, am I like cutting this person too much slack or am I, you know, overextending myself and and we'll check each other. And I love that we do that because then we can be more effective. So, you know, And I think, you know, it's like, you know, our support group, right? Principles in all of our affairs. Mm -hmm. I think what we do in our personal life also bleeds into what we do in our clinical life, right? Mm -hmm. Professional life. And similarly for both, you know, Um, and also don't do cognitive behavioral therapy with your partner. Just FYI. (laughs) (laughs) Just be a human, I guess,
1: (laughs) which is kind of what I think you should be doing in the room, too. But I'm just vibing here. So your your dissertation was about uh what what was the name of your dissertation? Yeah. I know it had something to do with relapse. Yeah, we so
0: when you so one of the cool things about writing a dissertation is you actually write a sentence and then you give it you say that's the title, right? So um it was the experience of relapse after long-term sobriety and the subsequent return to sobriety, right?
1: Um yeah, I mean I what did you find? And had you ever experienced relapse after long-term sobriety? Uh, I personally did not,
0: right? I um, And how know, long so, have you been sober? for Yeah, I've been sober for, at this point now, 15 years. Congrats. Um, I did have, thank you, sir. It's pretty amazing. Um, happened in April. So that's really cool. I'm still, I'm like, oh, 15. Now I've made it mm-hmm. in some ways. Um, and it's interesting. The re- <laughs> It's so far. It's, I don't know. But the research I did was on people at 15 plus years of sobriety. You know, we... We, you know, in our in our support group, we call them old timers. Mm -hmm. Um, I think some people feel that is uh, ageist language, so I had to change that in the in the academia to be, you know, long term recovering person, Um, and that's cool too. You know, Mm -hmm. it's uh, it's different stuff, but um,
1: yeah. I just what were some of the big takeaways from uh, from the your your research?
0: Yeah. So you know, I looked at um, I looked at. Uh, I just kind of it was more of an so there's um for uh, if you haven't done grad school and you're not you know familiar I will say like in terms of, there's qualitative research and there's quantitative research right and um, qualitative research is more exploratory it's more of looking for themes and kind of giving um, the researcher um, some ideas on what to then hypothesize you know to do a more substantial qualitative study that you can do statistics with and um, like have some more powerful results with so I will say that you know as a person who's hearing this and me chatting about this stuff to maybe keep that in mind that you know I had a really small sample size it was um, one guy yeah me no it was eight, <laughs> eight 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 individuals who were so brave and I'm so grateful that they were willing to spend some time with me and um, kind of go back to some of those places because it's not super fun to kind of mm-hmm. look at some Some of the stuff. But um I looked at um sort of what it was like for them to get sober, right, in terms of the first time. The first time, yeah, in terms Mm -hmm. of any treatment they may have received, um, and kind of just sort of if there was any mental health aspects to it. Um their experience of being someone who's considered an old timer. Um Mm -hmm. I know that number changes. I picked fifteen because all the other research I found had up to 13 years kind of. So I was like, okay, well this'll be, you want to add to the literature when you're doing this work. And, um, so I just chose 15 for that. Um, and looking at sort of what, how the person moved from being a, you know, a person with substantial recovery time, you know, to then moving towards relapse. And I also wanted to know, were there any challenges of, in terms of returning back to the fellowship, Mm -hmm. right? Was there anything that made it harder, Um, we talk about, you know, not shooting our, you know, our our, wounded, our wounded, right. And all that stuff. And, um, I was curious to see if there was anything like that, you know, perceived or real, you know, um, I guess I can't really look at that, but, and also just looking like was, what was the nature of the relapse as well, you know? And so some of the themes I found were that, um, and mind you previous research shows that there's like 6 out of 10 people in substance use recovery have a co-occurring disorder, At least call it dual diagnosis, but um like depression
1: think, anxiety. Depression,
0: anxiety, maybe eating disorder, maybe, you know, something else. Um in uh, but more so in the or personality, you know, or mm-hmm. even say a psychotic disorder, OCD, PTSD, like mm-hmm. all the, you know, acronyms and everything you could think of. Um, and then they, at some point, said, well, maybe we shouldn't say dual diagnosis because there might be more than two, right? So they didn't call them co-occurring disorders now, saying that, hey, yeah. they're happening at the same time. But um, whenever you hear dual diagnosis, it typically means a mental health issue and a substance use issue. Right. Um, and so what I found was that uh, these individuals that I interviewed typically only had acute treatment, right? So short-term treatment. Um
1: with their initial sobriety. With their
0: initial sobriety, yeah. So like maybe like a detox or mm-hmm. like a 30-day inpatient kind of situation. And that those treatment centers didn't necessarily utilize um uh evidence-based interventions, mm-hmm. right? Um that they didn't really address deeper emotional issues. It's kinda, hey, let's dry you up and get you out into the program. Which mm-hmm. is also good too, right? In right. some
1: ways. Um, but if there, you know, if there's PTSD and there's, yeah. I think that's one of the ways that um, some support groups can be lacking. As awesome as they are, is oftentimes they don't delve into um, trauma, and, right. and they're certainly not equipped to no. to deal with it. But no. they don't uh, sometimes uh, mention it enough or give enough weight to it and sometimes you know you'll see especially the old timers you know suck it up you know put a smile on your face and go help somebody else yes you know helping somebody is 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 fantastic but there's also times when you need to go into survival mode and process childhood shit and yeah. maybe take a break from being the coffee making person
0: sure i mean and i i, I think they work and they work they're complementary right because mm-hmm. uh you know uh we have this like book and it's big and it's blue sometimes otherwise it depends on the edition right and uh even the, and that's basically meant to be a textbook for the support we get. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, and even in that literature, it says outside issues, outside help, you -hmm. know? Um, and I, I think, um, if, you know, I don't think a a very thorough and fearless and and searching moral inventory is going to relieve those levels of trauma. It's going to help you look at them and understand them. Right. Right. But, um, if I have an electronics store and i 'm good with electronics and my plumbing goes out i 'm going to call a plumber right i 'm mm-hmm. not going to i 'm not going to use a computer to fix my plumbing issue no. necessarily I might I might actually type in what I want in an order and, and send it out, but then someone 's going to come who 's actually trained in that to help out um, yeah you know and there 's also this like paradigm shift right now that 's happening as well with with substance abuse and i and i think that has to do a lot with the stigma associated around it you know Mm -hmm. there's um still you know like oh you're you're an addict ugh, like you're a criminal right and that Mm -hmm. kind of stuff and i feel like that's changing to some extent and i i wouldn't say to some extent i think it really is changing i think people are looking at it as more of a mental health issue and looking at it more of like Okay, like let's look at this like we would hypertension. Like mm-hmm. let's look at this like we would diabetes. Let's not shame people who are already feeling enough guilt and shame uh. about, you know, what's going on with them. And um, you know, they they they've been having a lot of these studies of like, well, what if we actually treated it then? Like not just like, you know, a, a sprained ankle, right? But uh which actually might recover more than short-term care but Mm. like a flu right let's not treat it like a really bad flu and actually treat it like we would diabetes right right? let's let's not just say uh, can you imagine if someone was having a diabetic shock and walked into the er and they're like cool well here these are how you know here's a book on how to use insulin you know and good luck you know (laughs) you know so we but we do that with people in recovery right Mm. we say okay well you did your 30 days um we might have a discharge plan for you. We might not. Maybe you do mm-hmm. an IOP. But, you know, hey, like when you're done with all this, like, cool, let us know if you need any help ever. Mm-hmm. Right. And I, the studies are showing that if you do long-term treatment and you follow people through their process and at least check in, Kaiser's cool. They do lots of cool research mm-hmm. projects. And they found that people in their kind of treatment little, um, their their chemical dependency relapse prevention, if they had annual meetings with a doctor, an MD, who was just familiar with alcoholism with drug addiction and knew what kind of tests to do and just checked in about it and just asked
1: mm-hmm.
0: how's it going with this right that they got people in treatment quicker and right. they also saw that if you have someone meet with a therapist just to check in every five years you could prevent really gnarly <whistles> Gracie, right. oh, hey, puppy crazy come here by the way yeah. paul's yeah. dog is so cute guys yeah I'm she just is so awesome Petting this pup over here, and she's just loving it. She's wanting more and more.
1: You know, I was I was about to uh, say, but what, you know, what about people who've never been through rehab but uh, got sober? And I'm I'm one of those people. Yeah. And I was about to say that, and I realized, well, in many ways, I have been through rehab because. Even before I got sober, I've been seeing a psychiatrist and I've been seeing a therapist. Yeah. And so then I tried to imagine what it would be like if I had never seen a psychiatrist and I'd never seen a therapist and I tried to stay sober and I'm like, there's no fucking yeah. way. There's no fucking way.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's I mean, you know, it's it's hard. I mean, it's um well I'm I'm really glad that was your path and it seems to be working out, you know? Yeah. Um yeah, I think getting services for people can be really, really challenging.
1: Really challenging. Um, so hard,
0: so hard. And I, you know, having a chance to have gotten to work in a prison setting, you know, mm-hmm. um, as a uh, as part of the mental health team, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, as part of my internship, I, I did notice that, you know, a lot of these people, you know, didn't have the resources for that kind of help, mm-hmm. you know, and um, are now sort of trapped. In the system, because you know it, it, probation and parole is not forgiving. You know, you know, you stand next to uh, a person who has a knife, right? And the cop can take you back to prison for violating your your parole. Even if you're not
1: the person with it, now. even if
0: you're not the person, if you're simply associating with them, you're, okay. you're at a bus stop and a guy's got you know grandma meth on him, and the cops bust him, and they say, hey, you, you know, you got them tattoos, right? Mm-hmm. Like, are you in there? You're like, I'm in the system. They're like, cool, you're coming with us. Right. And it's really it's kind of fucked because how can you get help when the help in that system is about, hey, let's we're just trying to make sure you're okay enough to be here kind of. Mm -hmm. So I don't know. I got some opinions on that. I do want to say I am grateful to CDCR for the opportunity to, um, you know, be an intern with them. And and, uh, um, I think they are doing the best they can with what they have. And maybe it's a bigger topic on, you know, how. Uh, public funding gets through all that stuff, which I think is bigger than this podcast. Bigger, I'm sure bigger. we can talk about we that offline. Need five yeah, we can talk about that. So to talk about and I, that. And I also don't—I don't even have all the information anyway. Um, but I will say, what I noticed that a lot of those guys didn't have those resources and um, mm-hmm. got got caught up in the wrong thing. And I hope as we decriminalize some of the substance stuff and um, all that, that would be cool. I loved working as a. Um, a substance counselor for people who are mandated, um, nonviolent drug offenders. Mm-hmm. Like instead of, Hey, instead of having you just go to jail yeah. and have like a misdemeanor for substances on your record where you're now no longer going to be able to get a job. Mm-hmm. Right. And you are just going to have to deal or do other stuff yeah. to get money. Like there's that. There's, um, there's an,
1: an organization uh, called leap. And I forget what the acronym is for. It's a law hmm. enforcement so, so, Something, yeah. uh, forgive me, Neil. Uh, Neil Woods is a was a guy who was a guest, and he was a undercover a narcotics officer in England. Who one day, in a moment of clarity, and went, "I am making the problem worse mm. uh, because incarceration is not the answer right. to the drug problem. Right. Uh, you can't incarcerate it away as your sole tool." And so he, along with uh, yeah. a group of uh, present-day and former law enforcement yeah. officials, judges, have have formed this group to wow. try to do something to get rid of incarceration as the sole tool for, for battling uh, yeah. the addiction epidemic. And um, uh, much needed, much needed. But that, that just popped in my head, and I wanted yeah. to give uh, Neil a uh, and his group is shouted I, out. I,
0: I, I did reference a few of those studies in my alert review, like just kind of those kinds of, there's uh, a few programs that do that. And uh, those are based on a long-term care model, mm-hmm. right? In terms of not only just addressing this one piece of the issue, but a whole host of issues and offering enough time where the person has practice at staying sober, where, you know, they have that support, you know, and it's um, it's really cool to see just outcomes from a lot of those studies where... You have law enforcement and you know the judicial system and you have you know mental health and substance and all that stuff working together um to help people you know just get out of the rut you know yeah. otherwise that i also noticed um that what did happen was that so people the people in my study tended to have mental health issues that they were not addressing right and um you know i and then they started kind of drifting away Mm -hmm. and maybe some like new stuff would come up you know Um, and uh, because they drifted away that new stuff would activate their old stuff and then they found themselves feeling more okay about drinking or using Mm -hmm. and sometimes they went from hey this person was a cocaine or alcohol user and now they're using pills right or uh, you know what I was a fall down drunk but this joint's not going to do much to me Although you know the weed now is way more powerful right. than it was ten, fifteen thirty years ago um and um let's see, I think what I also noticed was when people came back, they did feel ostracized,
1: you know, and they they felt um you even, know. even if it was of their own yeah. thinking um uh, because i I know almost every person I know that goes out. And comes back you know after a relapse they're filled with shame and they're so afraid of judgment mm-hmm. and very rarely do I hear somebody judging them behind their back
0: yeah I mean I, and I think I want to say that I feel like most of the time that's that's kind of what we see you know and we're all we're all people trying to figure things out and we have some moments so maybe uh, maybe one of the people in the study um, You know, they're they went back to their home group and someone was so upset about that fact, you know, and not that like, hey, like, don't be here, but just like the idea that someone with that much time could relapse Mm
1: -hmm.
0: meant that something was flawed about recovery. Right. And, to that person right and you know just at the podium i think they were they shared about that right right that at that where that person was at that meeting and then i think because of that filter right they're coming in with just that shame and, and all those feelings already um they take it a little bit they could take it a little more personally you yeah. know possibly um, I think there's also, you know, age related kind of issues with that. Maybe like, you know, you're coming when you're 20 or 30, and now you're trying to get sober at 60 again, right? It's, you may not have the same drive. You know, you might have, uh, you know, you might have some very standard age related cognitive decline, you know, so getting back in the work can be hard. Um, and I think a lot, a lot of shame. A lot of shame. A lot lot of of, shame. A lot of themes of shame. But then the flip side was finding acceptance. So finding the people who, you know, they did feel connected with Mm. and people who were showing up. Right. And uh, I think one person talked about how the people I thought were going to show up for me actually didn't. And the people I didn't think were going to show up were the ones who really stepped up. And that was cool to see that, you know, it was – there was like change in that
1: and kind of a great example of really in many ways what recovery is is because we think it's going to be one thing you know Mm -hmm. i thought it was going to be a combination of traffic school and the boringness of church (laughs) and it turns out it's like my favorite clubhouse in the world where i laugh and i cry and i feel connected but you know my crystal ball had it painted a completely different, uh, so it's not surprising that coming yeah. back from a relapse would be surprising as well.
0: Absolutely. I mean, i even just talking about myself when I first, first got sober, you know, I still had, um, you know, I, I had some residual psychotic stuff happening personally. Um, and I imagine if I was to relapse, um, I'll be honest, this is how I know I need my support groups and Mm -hmm. and I'm I'm right where I need to be. I've like thought about, well, if I'm going to throw this time away, like here's what I'm going to get out of my system before I come back. Oh yeah. And that's some, it's some really, it's like way more progressive than anything I was doing before. And given that I'm older now, a little bit Mm -hmm. older now, um, and who knows if I was to relapse that much older, whatever. I can't imagine that that's going to go super well with my psyche and neurotransmitters and
1: circuitry and all that, you know? Yeah, all the drugs Um, that I've heard people share about using, I'm like, note to self, if you relapse, (laughs) check out speed balls, because those (laughs) sound like a lot of fun. Heroin and cocaine at the same time. How can that not be right? (laughs) You don't nod out. You you don't get too too amped up. My heart doesn't know which way to go, but hey, that's part of the fun, right? (laughs) As my friend Mike Schmidt said, that's like putting a bar fight your arm <laughs> right and <laughs> it's funny to hear because people who maybe have
0: arm recovery will get yes. the humor around that the dark humor around that yes. and then others are like what are they talking why are about? they laughing about that's this. not okay and that's it's what we're we do. We're, yeah. we're sort of you know for those of you who are whispering and wondering why we're talking like this and laughing yeah. um it's because we're we're not trying try we're trying not to take ourselves too seriously in this very serious thing that we do right so but yeah, there was, you know, finding acceptance, um, just a process of, of going through cognitive reframing uh, for a lot of um, the individuals. Uh, it was, hey, like, you know what? Maybe I could be helpful to someone who's gone through that, too. Absolutely. Because we don't like talking about that. We don't want to feel that, you know, if someone with 30 years relapses, does that mean the program's flawed? It's like, no, there's a whole bunch of variables that go into that whole thing, right? And, um, and so... Maybe someone else is like that, and who who's going to understand the other person in the room or in the, in the in the city who has that same issue? Except other than someone who's had it. So
1: right. when you hear your story come out of somebody else's mouth; it's a magic right. moment. Right,
0: and and what a very like uh, that's a very specific thing, you know. Yes. Um, and uh, so in that, there's almost like a, a post traumatic resilience or post traumatic growth that comes from that kind of thing of. Hey, like this really horrible thing happened, but you know what, maybe I can be helping other people. So almost kind of renewing that service work, renewing that kind of connection to the, the spirit and the principles of the program. Um, and then I think also, you know, for the people who I talked to who are really enjoying recovery again, they re-engaged the program and, and they, they started checking out other meetings, Mm -hmm. you know, um, and I think in LA, we're really lucky that we have uh, eight gazillion, bazillion meetings of all varieties, you know, and we, that we can go to. So and I, there's, isn't it, have you heard, is there's a joke about that, right? They're like, mm-hmm. why are there so many meetings in LA, right? And it's like, well, like, you know, someone gets a resentment at a meeting and then
1: they start their own meeting. They get a
0: coffee pot and now they have their own meeting, right? So right. a lot of resentment's going on. But, it's cool. So it's a kind of like, okay, well, let me try these out. Let me, let me do this. Let me, let me try something different. Um, mm-hmm. let me not make it stale, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, and I think those were kinds of the, the themes that I kind of saw working mm-hmm. through, um, you know, someone I interviewed, this was such a powerful image though. They, they, they said going to like the psych hospital felt like being in a womb. Right. And so, I I love my, I love the fellowship. I, I don't know uh, I hope we can provide that feeling for someone. But, um, I also think that, you know, maybe they need some external stuff as mm-hmm. well. Right. And I think we, it also kind of points to challenges in the fellowship of, Hey, we, you know, we don't take anything that affects us from the neck up. Right. And so, um, I was actually sharing uh, it a meeting.
1: You're not talking about uh, psych meds, yeah. obviously.
0: I'm, I am. Yeah, I'm talking about, yeah, yeah, that's what I, yeah. I'm referring to psych meds, right? And, uh, but anything, right? So like, it could be psych meds, it could be, you know. Um,
1: Wait, are you saying that?
0: So when we, I, what I, you know, our, our thing is so a lot of, I'll, I'll hear old timers and just people say, I don't take anything that affects me from the neck
1: oh, up. Oh, okay. Right? I thought you were endorsing that. I, idea that you don't take anything, no, you don't take psych no, meds, I was going to be I, like, oh, hold on, yeah, we're going to have to carve out another half hour here. I, <laughs> I think,
0: I think there's certain things we can be really black and white about. You know, right. if I go and drink some some alcohol and uh, my intention is to get a buzz off of it, I, I've definitely relapsed, right? Um, if I'm working in conjunction and, you know, with if I'm working with a doctor, right, and I'm being very clear about what my situation is with my recovery, and um, it's a doctor that actually understands that. Um, what, what it means to be in recovery and has some education around it and has some experience. Um, and I'm just keeping contact with my sponsor and all that stuff. Then I think, you know,
1: I was on Adderall for yeah. a while through my right. psychiatrist Yeah, and, uh, it worked. I had to get off of it because of high blood pressure, but it worked. It yeah. helped my depression. Right. And I didn't abuse it; I had no desire to abuse it.
0: And, and you clearly aren't wasted right now, so it, it didn't lead to well, other kind of you, things. The
1: second to... you go, baby, <laughs> I'm, drinking, you know, I'm drinking ammonia. I don't yeah. even know if that's going to work. It just sounds good.
0: But I think there's that stigma, right? It's yeah. like, hey, like if you take an antidepressant, like you're cheating, right? If you're taking Suboxone, like you're cheating. It's not you're not really sober if you're on Suboxone. And it's like, you know what? Like, what the fuck do you care? You know, like yeah, show
1: me your MD, MD degree. <laughs> yeah. fuck Face,
0: there's that, and 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 it's also like, hey, like maybe, um, maybe sobriety isn't just about having zero chemicals in your system. Um, and maybe if you are that person, maybe not having caffeine and nicotine. But here's the problem then if there is that person who doesn't have caffeine or nicotine and they're like, nothing from the neck up, I actually can't argue with that person in that sense but existentially right i'd be like hey those are your values and those are your beliefs mm-hmm. i can i can be chill with you having those and that's what's right for you you know right. but i i did i actually spoke at a meeting um i gave a i gave it i gave a i gave a ted talk at the support group you know mm-hmm. and uh in one of the support groups and um a psych nurse and I, I went on a rant about mental health and uh and psych meds and all that and uh Um, this, this, this woman who was a a psychiatric nurse and also sober, you know, came up to me and was like, I'm so grateful you said that because I can't tell you how many people I've had come into the hospital, either like really manic or psychotic or suicidally depressed because someone told them they're not allowed to take psych meds if they want to be sober. Right. And I think that, um, I think that sort of mentality maybe also keeps people from, seeking out external cuz what's the if if well, am i going to go see a psychiatrist if i'm not going to take any medication right. you know
1: yeah. i think, and, and, uh, and i think that is changing at least in in los angeles i see that oh, much sure. less prevalent because, oh for
0: sure yeah. you know you know and i think that's kind of some of the things that were um that kind of like help like kept people who then ended up going out right. you know kind of a pro, like that kind of added to the problem gotcha. is that they weren't addressing those things mm-hmm. um i think one of the people that came to for the interview was even like i just wanted to talk to a mental health professional about my stuff and i figured this could be my <laughs> cheat code for that and i was All like right. okay well look, let, me, let me give you some referral you know like let me like let's let's help you actually kind of do some more work with that but um yeah i mean it was really it was really cool to see i i was at a meeting um where my uh, first started and uh getting sober and this guy a really famous comedian who um i saw him stand up and take a newcomer chip you know and i was just like so it was such a intense experience to see just the level of um emotions and just like the his experience happening and um and his buddy taking a chip you know for 28 years right and um and uh you know that guy didn't make it you know he wasn't able to stay and um you know, I think
1: that's. You don't of, mean he died; he just didn't.
0: No, he died. Yeah, oh, he, he did. He actually committed suicide. Um, wow. I think part of that was because um, he wasn't able to maintain his sobriety for long periods of time, but then also had a, an external, like, a medical diagnosis that was just, um, just added to it. You know, and so I think if we can talk about this stuff. And um, not shame, oh, like, you know, not shame people about going out or like mm-hmm. scoff, you know, or kind of just be mindful of it, you know, or um, like, oh, it's too bad, you know, just like, hey, welcome back. You know, yeah. I heard my buddy share at a meeting uh, yesterday, actually, and he been trying to get sober for like 10, 15 years mm-hmm. and uh, he's got a couple of years now and he was like, you know, no one. No one gave me a hard time. They were just like, hey man, welcome back.
1: We're glad let's we go. missed you.
0: We missed you let's go to a movie Yeah you know and, and he's like doing awesome now and so I'm really happy about that. I have a
1: friend who who he's now got a couple of months under his belt but he has struggled with uh, crack and meth and mm-hmm. he's 65 years old wow. and he has struggled with sobriety most of his life and and I tell him because he'll call me up after he uses you know and I'll be filled with shame. And I say, Jeff, I love you. Whether you're sober or fucked up, you're you're a lovable guy either yeah. way. You know, I may if if you're calling me fucked up and babbling, I may have to hang the phone up because right. I don't want to deal with that, not, Jeff.
0: And you're not rescuing anymore, right? I'm not so. rescuing.
1: Um, but you know, when you want when you want help or you know you, you want somebody to to talk to, uh, I'm here. And so he and I talk yeah. every day yeah
0: awesome and you know what i think that helps people feel okay enough to come back and stuff you know so yeah i mean it was it was really cool um kind of you know uh, they tell you to like work on something that you're actually interested on your dissertation or else you're just gonna lose your mind (laughs) right and at the same time you know you have so much limited time and energy um, and you want to add to the field and do something. You know, I would love to have surveyed like 100 people. And and so mm-hmm. I encourage if, I mean, if anyone is actually interested in uh, doing that work and uh, need someone on their, you know, research team for that, I'd be happy to.
1: Um, well, if you want to create a survey uh, yeah. for the listeners, uh, we can, I'm sure a couple hundred people will probably uh take it over time some of our surveys yeah. 10,000 people have, yeah. have have taken them so that's true and uh,
0: yeah. th- then i'd have to find like an academic review board as well oh, fuck so that. i think what it's i what, gonna come here's in, my and... this would be my preference just yes. cuz it's about me right cuz i'm not yeah. you know but if there's a grad student out there who's like really interested in like kind of exploring this topic a little mm-hmm. bit more and you want to have like an external sort of um, outside expert or something like that to help consult and just like, you know, work on this project with you. Um, you know, someone did that for me, um, on, on this project. And, um, I'm, I'm more than happy to like return the favor, uh, and, and do some work on, you know, expanding the field of psychology around, around, uh, co-occurring disorders and, uh, and relapse and uh, long-term sobriety, you know, um, I may actually someday need, the benefits of that research i don't know it's one day at a yeah. time you know but yeah if
1: anyone wants to reach out you know uh, so where can people uh find you if uh if they want to yeah well um hmm. they could also just email me and i could forward yeah, it to yeah i think you. that
0: would be the best way to go i, I have okay. a um you know i don't know if someone's going to hear this in a year from now but i do i you know it's e sharak e s-h-a-h-r-o-k-h at visions com. Um, Visions Teen, correct? Yeah. T-E-E-N. T-E-E-N, yeah. yeah. Um Yeah. It's an adult. It's a. I mean, I'm so grateful to be working at that place. Like the, you know, management. It's a teen leader. treatment center. Yeah, it's, yeah, they have, and they have some. Uh, I'm at the uh, Dual House quote-unquote, right, with, mm-hmm. uh, you know, the and the dual house in Malibu. But we have some mental health houses and IOP, and there's, like, mm-hmm. some specialty services that we can offer, too. Um, but it's just, like, from, you know, the one, I, I work with some amazing clinicians, um, and I also work with some wonderful, amazing support staff who really, really care. Um, and, uh, you know, like the, the management and up-and-ups, mm-hmm. you know, are, are super, super awesome. I mean, you know, like yeah. I i asked for six weeks of leave time to just bond with my baby and yes i guess legally they're not allowed to say no but there wasn't any like like there wasn't any hesitation or any like they were just like cool like how can we facilitate this right like how can we support you while you're doing that and uh and make sure that no one's like calling you while you're like trying to you know all that stuff right. and so um it's just a such a cool team and um You know, uh, I actually was not licensed when I started there and then I became licensed. So, Mm -hmm. um, I know I've grown a lot there as well, but, um, yeah. So E as an Edward S H A H R O K H at visions, like a vision for you, Mm -hmm. visions, com. And so my only hesitation with that is, uh, if, if, uh, I'm pretty sure I'm going to be working there forever. I don't know, (laughs) you know, um, if they change their email structure, they decide just to make it Edward at whatever, you know. Uh, but, yeah, reach out if you want to, you know, do some, some work on this stuff. And um, you need someone on your team, happy to help.
1: Thanks for coming, buddy. Oh, gee, thanks for having me. I'm glad we could do this. Many, many thanks to uh, – it feels so weird when you're, a friend of yours is a doctor to, to say, uh, Dr. Chirac. Many thanks to Dr. Chirac. Let's dive into some surveys. You know what I keep forgetting to uh, ask you guys to support is uh, our Patreon website. It's patreon.com slash mentalpod. And uh, monthly donors, uh, it's down a bit, and it's a really important part um, of keeping the podcast going, and you can donate as little as a dollar a month, and... uh, it's, it's greatly appreciated. All right, surveys. This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself vegan CrossFit Gaysian. She uh, identifies as bisexual. She is in her 20s, says that she was raised in a pretty dysfunctional uh, environment was the victim of sexual abuse and reported it she writes my best friend raped me the second week of my sophomore year of college the next day she apologized and admitted that it was assault i reported it three months later to the school she took back everything she said and swore that it was consensual all of my friends either refused to pick sides or took her side in the investigation and the case got dropped they all said That it was probably a misunderstanding or that I led her on. One told me that at least it was another girl. Wow. The school dropped the case because they had no evidence. What hurts the most is that all of my old friends still talk to her. I dropped out of college later that year. I try not to think about it now, but I still flinch when certain people touch me. Uh, She has been emotionally abused. She writes, My dad is bipolar, and he's been extremely emotionally abusive since I was little. At one point in high school, he blamed me for all of his and my mother's marriage issues. I once forgot to bring him home Italian ice, and he told me that I was just trying to piss him off, and then he told me to just go upstairs and slice myself. Previously, I had a self-harm problem, and he used everything he could against me. He's been better lately, but now it's little things. It's constant. I feel like I can't say no to him. Sometimes he'll say that I clearly love my mom more because she enables my eating disorder. Other times he'll just remind me that I'm a, that I'm selfish and treat him like shit. He has his good days and it makes me feel guilty that I still keep my distance, but he's unstable and he doesn't realize how unpredictable he is. I'm beginning to fear that that i really am the problem well from what you've described uh your father um irregardless of what you're doing what your father is doing is uh, inappropriate at the very least and and you know i think more accurately abusive the things that he says doesn't matter what you're doing somebody should not say that to an another person and i'm not saying if, if you know If you're being abusive, there shouldn't be consequences, but not in the form of uh, somebody telling you to go slice yourself or, uh, you know. Yeah. Uh, Any positive experiences with the abusers? Growing up with my father has made me a stronger person. I've learned how to stand up for myself. I've learned how to hold my own. Well, that is an answer to the question, are there any benefits from the... uh, I think rather than positive experiences, uh, that sounds more like a positive you took from it rather than positive experiences with that person. Uh, Darkest thoughts. Sometimes when I had difficulty falling asleep, uh, I wish that I could kill myself just because it would feel better than lying awake at night stuck with my thoughts darkest secrets i'm terrified that i'm too mentally unstable to ever hold a steady job or get anywhere in life i'm afraid that one day i'll just snap and kill myself i'm afraid that i'll never never gather up the courage never gather up the courage to kill myself and i'll end up stuck in my house with my father and work a dead end job to make ends meet for the rest of my life i'm terrified that i'll never truly escape my eating disorder Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I haven't had any enjoyable sex, and that scares me. I don't know if it's because I was raped. I've only had sex once since then. Sometimes, though, I'm tempted to call up my friend for a hookup because I know that, that it will make me feel numb. I know that he can temporarily fuck the empty out of me. Boy, that is a, that is a sentence. Fuck the empty out of me. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? To my high school English teacher, I know that you don't have to answer my emails anymore. I'm not a student, so it's not your job, but it still hurts that you said once you'd always be there for me, and now you're not. It's like writing a ghost. It's like crying in an abandoned auditorium. In high school, you saved me from killing myself. Maybe that was too much for you. I wish I could say that I'm better now, but I'm not. I'm different, but not better. So much has happened to me, so many bad things. I wish I could just talk to you again. I wish you were there to comfort me. I'm sorry that I got so attached, that I'm still so attached. I'm sorry. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish I could be free of my eating disorder. Have you shared these things with others? I've been talking with my therapist for years now, and it helps, but sometimes I'm afraid that she'll send me back to the hospital uh, or to eating disorder treatment again. I think a lot of us relate to that fear of if we fully open up somebody somebody's suggestion is going to be something that we really don't want to do. Uh how do you feel after writing these things down? It feels a little bit lighter. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad and thank you for sharing all of that stuff and I, and I really hope that you can start to heal from this this stuff and start to feel safe in setting boundaries around people that are that are toxic. This is an awful moment filled out by a guy who calls himself John Doe, and he writes, When I was 19 years old, I went on a first date with a wonderful wonderful girl. Well, on the date, my car unfortunately caught on fire due to an electrical short. We both got out unharmed, but as a college athlete, I now was in the unfortunate position of being without transport transportation i had recently broken my back for the third time in my sport so maybe all in the universe was telling me it was time to quit the sport and get a job i found a job as a bartender near where i lived so i could walk to and from work and catch the bus to school it was day three of my training and i was finally cleared to actually work a gentleman came in and sat down asking me, what's the cheapest beer you got? At the time, we were trying to get rid of some monthly special called Red Rocket. Buy one for a buck seventy-five and get a second one free. It was a hell of a deal. The name, however, caused this gentleman and I to crack jokes for 15 minutes about canine erections until he decided he would take one. I popped the top and went to the back to change a keg. Now, I must say this man was bald and had a beard down to his belly button. He was at least 35. But when I came out, he was gone, and there were two very less than friendly detectives asking who served him. My very first beer served, and I didn't ID a very obviously of age police officer. I ended up getting one year probation with some very invasive drug tests, a hefty fine and met some unique people in my 100 hours of community service. At the time, it was the worst experience of my life. Now, I'm incredibly thankful for the experience. I wish you would have detailed what you're thankful for about about it. Um, I imagine it was a fucking learning experience. Who knows? Maybe you met the love of your life picking up trash on the side of the highway. But thank you for sharing that. Uh, This is from the Shame and Secret survey filled out by a guy who calls himself I'm Screwed. He identifies as straight. He is in his 40s. He was raised, uh, he says, in a slightly dysfunctional environment, Uh, was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. He writes, as a young child, I was sexually assaulted by a teen boy in my neighborhood. This went on for several months. He gained my trust and then turned on me. He would threaten to tell my friends if I didn't submit to his assaults. I felt dirty, weird, and as I grew, it made me question my own sexuality. I was afraid to tell my parents and scared my friends would find out. I lived in silence for more than 30 years until I began therapy for PTSD, major depressive disorder, and anxiety related to my experiences serving in the military. It was during these sessions that I opened up about what happened in my childhood and began to make peace with it. He has been physically and emotionally abused. He writes, I was a victim of hazing in the military. Sadly, I also became an abuser. Military culture is a weird thing. We pride ourselves on honor, yet we do some of the most fucked up things to each other, and we call it team building and camaraderie. Normalizing physical and mental abuse is one of the worst things we can do, and the military is pretty damn good at it. Any positive experiences with abusers? I find nothing positive about my abuse and trauma. Obviously, my abuser was probably also abused himself. Knowing this, I can forgive him, and I can only hope that he found help and didn't become a monster. Darkest thoughts. That I'm never going to be good enough despite all the things I've accomplished in life. That I will fuck up and end up alone and homeless. Darkest secrets. I confided in my current partner about my childhood sexual abuse, and she also knows about my military experiences. She's been supportive of me. Then one night while I was sleeping, she awoke and accused me of masturbating in front of our child, who was also sleeping in our bed. Uh, I had been asleep and was completely floored by this. It wasn't true, and I was speechless. Since then, she's never said she believes me and generally doesn't want to talk about it. Now, I don't know what to do. I'm completely fucked up by this. I have zero confidence in myself and in our relationship. I feel wounded and betrayed, yet the codependent side of me worries about how she is feeling. I'm afraid to talk to a therapist and get help, afraid that I will be falsely accused of being the very thing that screwed up my childhood, afraid that my life will be ruined. I feel trapped and lost, and I don't know what to do. I love this person, and they love me. I firmly believe they have trust issues. My partner had a series of failed relationships before me and was physically abused as a child. These things all inform who she is today, and I think are at the root of her lack of trust in me. Boy, that's heavy, man. That is heavy, and I I can't imagine how confusing that must be. I can't imagine. Uh, Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you, being tied up and dominated by my partner. Uh, Writing that makes me feel sad and excited. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? Please know that I am a good person. My PTSD centers on the safety and security of others, and my constant fear and anxiety that something bad will happen to those I care about. What, if anything, do you wish for? The strength to get through each day and to no longer be scared. Have you shared these things with others? No, I would be ruined. How do you feel after writing these things down? Like some weight has been lifted. My problems are still there, but putting them to words has a power of its own. Thank you, buddy. Thank you for going deep on that, man. i hope you find somebody that you can you can open up with um because it it sounds like you're in a lonely place right now and that is a shitty shitty place to be sending you some love this is also from the shame and secret survey filled out by a woman who calls herself testing testing She identifies as bisexual. She's in her 20s, uh, says that she was raised in a stable and safe environment and was the victim of sexual abuse and never reported it. And also some stuff happened, but she's not sure if it counts as sexual abuse. She writes, my first boyfriend changed after the first month. He lied a lot, shamed me, and said he would commit suicide if I left him. I think this is why I didn't consider the man who had sex with me, though I said no to be rape. I laid down and let my boyfriend have sex with me because I was scared. Not saying that wasn't my fault, as not saying that wasn't my fault as well. I want to regain power of my sexuality. Um, yeah, you know, uh, verbal and emotional manipulation is a form of uh, sexual drama. Uh, She has been emotionally abused and not sure about being physically abused, apart from my first boyfriend, bullying. I still have a hard time seeing it as abuse and still have a hard time seeing people being kind to me as being honest. Any positive experiences with abusers? There are positive feelings, uh, and it complicates my feelings about what happened. Darkest Thoughts. I think about stealing insulin from my work and giving myself a hypoglycemia. I think about feeling empty, jumping onto a track, jumping off a building. Not as much thoughts as feelings, Uh, and it's better now. Darkest Secrets. I have a memory of my father feeling my breasts and my stomach when I'm around seven years old, and when I ask him what he's doing, he says he's just checking. Checking. I also remember my nightmares of being pregnant with his child when I was about the same age, and he still lets his hand slide down on my butt and take a firm grip around my neck, shaking it. That is so fucked up. This is the first time I've put it down in words. I'm scared there might be more memories, and I'm also scared I'm painting him as a worse person than he is. There is a lot of good things about my father. And, you know, as, as many people would say, it's, it's not about deciding is he a totally good person or is he a totally bad person. People can be both at the same time. People are fucking complicated. I think what's important is asking yourself, what am I going to do as far as boundaries? being around him? Am I going to continue to allow him to do that, to touch me that way? Um, And am I going to find a support group or a therapist to process uh, this stuff that is fucking with me? Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. I can only get off to porn. I hate porn. Not other people getting off to porn, but me getting off to porn with females being so submissive and females in the industry being so abused but i get off to it what if anything would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to my deepest darkest secret uh to know what it is what if anything do you wish for to find love in whatever shape or form cliche but true um (laughs) <laughs> in parentheses she puts i've been drinking have you shared these things with others some of it i've only found support if someone is listening you can also find support how do you feel after writing these things down i don't know the same to be honest and then in parentheses equals drunk thank you for sharing that stuff and um uh, yeah man people are complicated and when it's a parent, or you know, a caregiver, or a spouse, it it makes it doubly, doubly fucking complicated. This is uh, this is an Awfulsome moment filled out by a woman who calls herself Oscar Woody. Uh, I, I imagine that is a is that a reference to Woody Allen. Uh, she writes, When I was 16, my father was admitted to the hospital for wanting to commit suicide. He did not actually attempt suicide, but he had a plan. And if my father's friend had not visited my father that day uh, that he was admitted, he would have killed himself. I wanted to go visit my father during the time he was admitted, and my mother was willing to take me. As we walked in, I saw my father sitting on the couches in the wreck area. My heart sank. He looked broken. I could just feel his sadness and the emptiness inside him. He burst into tears when he saw me and my mother. We sat down with him and started to cry, too. He was just repeating how sorry he was to me and my mother. During the heart-to-heart we were having, a catering hospital staff was cleaning up the lunch trays that were left around. He started to sing, "'Don't worry, be happy.'" Then other patients started to sing and dance along as he was cleaning up lunch. Both my mom and dad and me looked up from our conversation and watched the array of patients and staff dancing and singing. I look over at my father, and he started to laugh and smile. It was the first time I'd heard him laugh in months. (laughs) Oh, that's beautiful. Beautiful. Thank you for that. And then finally, this is a happy moment filled out by Nina. She writes I'm a mechanical engineer by trade, and like many, I lost my job during the pandemic. It truly forced me to reevaluate what the fuck I was doing with my life. I live with bipolar disorder and have always struggled to find healthy coping mechanisms, heavily relying on marijuana and alcohol to numb the emotional intensity. Jobless and lost. I began to write songs, play the piano, and sing to help cope with depression, and you'd be surprised how effective it is to bang on some keys to release manic energy. On New Year's Eve 2021, I broke down and realized how desperate I was to pursue music more seriously. I decided to apply to a music school, and to my utter disbelief, I was accepted. I've been in the program for the last year and a half, Uh, And it has completely transformed my life. It helped me discover abilities I didn't know I possessed and inspired confidence I didn't believe was ever possible. It actually empowered me to leave the miserable relationship I was in and live on my own for the first time. About six months ago, I I began performing the music I've been writing and damn, is it fun. I recently stopped smoking for the first time in years so I can heal my vocal cords. Singing has become too important to lose. For the first time, I can actually imagine a future and a life worth living. I'm crying while writing these words, but this time they are tears of joy. Huh, that is so awesome. It is amazing how things open up when we choose authenticity rather than being stuck and paralyzed by fear. It's amazing, but it's so scary. Making life changes is so fucking scary. Yeah. Um, well, I am not going to be uh, releasing a new episode for the month of July, so we will, uh, we'll be running best ofs uh, the rest of the month, and then we'll be back with new episodes in August. Um, stay groovy. <laughs> Have a great summer. Signed my yearbook. Um, I, I'm taking a a much needed vacation and uh, and really looking forward to it. And um, thank you guys for for all your support. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, just remember you are not alone. And thanks for listening.
0: Everybody I know is bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird ways. Bizarrely beautifully fucked up in some weird way.